Today I want to preach to you about the true believer's pursuit. And if you didn't pick up an outline, there are some back there on the table. I suggest you pick one up that has an outline of the sermon in the bulletin there. I want to talk to you about the, the true believer's pursuit, which is outlined here in this text we're going to look at this morning in Philippians 3, 1 to 16. So just listen as, as we hear God speak to us through the letter to the Philippians by the Apostle Paul here, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as manure, rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained or learned. In this text, we are being reminded by God, through the Apostle Paul, we are being reminded of the sanctifying power of the gospel in the lives of those who believe. In chapter 3, Paul is simply reiterating what he said in chapter 2, verse 12. Paul's telling us that we will press on. We will pursue a Christ-exalting life because of what it says in Philippians 2.12. It's the because statements that are really important in this text. 
You need to circle those. He's telling us that we will press on because of what it says here in 2.12. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's why we persevere. That's why we pursue righteousness. It's because Christ has made us his own. Theologians call this pursuit, this, this pressing on, they call this progressive sanctification. We are progressively being set apart by God and progressively being conformed to the image of Christ because, because of what it says really in verse 11 of chapter 3. We're being progressively sanctified because of the resurrection power of Christ that is at work in those who truly trust in Christ's righteousness. Those who truly believe are being progressively transformed because of the power that resides within us. It's the power of Christ and his resurrection. We have new life. It's a very interesting term in verse 11. We'll look at later. But in verse 11, the, the term resurrection there that's being used actually is the only time this term is used in the New Testament here. It means out resurrection. It means out resurrection. He, he says, I may attain to the outward display of the power of the resurrection in my life. That's what he's looking to do because of Christ's life that resides in him. He knows that the life that Christ placed in him will progressively be shown through him. And that's what he's calling the Philippians to remember. In Philippians 3, Paul is reminding true believers to press on toward the goal. The prize, the upward call that is theirs because God called them in Christ Jesus to be set apart for good works, to glorify his name now and forever. He calls them to do that and he calls us to do that through self-examination. Self-examination is part of the Christian's ongoing sanctification. It's not something that happens just one time when we were converted to Christ we recognized our sins, recognized our offenses against God, and we repented of those things, confessed those to God, turned from those things, and trusted in His Son. That's not just a one-time act. That's an ongoing work of examining our lives. Are we continually trusting in Christ's righteousness that obtained us favor with God? Or do we trust in our own good works to find favor with God? We have to examine ourselves constantly because we are prone to wander like the Philippians. In our flesh, our default position is works-based salvation. We come back to trusting in our own abilities too often because of our flesh and the weakness of our flesh. We want to see instant transformation. So we think if we do a good thing, we'll balance out the scales from the bad things that we've done in the past. But instead, God shows us that in Christ, those scales have already been balanced and we have a positive righteousness that transforms us daily. As we sin, we look back to Christ and see what he did to atone for our sins. We rejoice because of that and we pursue righteousness, not to obtain favor, but because we have been favored by God's grace. But he's telling the Philippians to do something very particular here, flowing out of chapter 2. He's telling them to, to examine themselves, but he's telling them to do some specific things, I think, out of the context. He's telling them to examine their leaders, their spiritual leaders that were mentioned there in, at the end of chapter 2. He's telling us to, we need, we need to, as a church, we need to examine our spiritual leaders, their teaching and their lifestyle. You need to examine those things carefully. We also need to examine our lives carefully. 
our personal actions, our reflection of Christ's righteousness that works out of us. He's telling us to examine that as well. Examine our hearts, our motives. Examine what you're truly trusting in. Examine your actions. What are your actions saying about your profession? Do they line up? You say you're a follower of Christ. Does your life look like a follower of Christ? Are you actively repenting, actively trusting in Christ and turning to Him for strength? Is He your refuge? Is He your salvation? That should be seen through our actions. That's what Paul's calling the Philippians to consider this morning. That's what he's calling us to consider this morning. Paul calls for true believers to pursue sanctification. He, he tells us to do that in very particular ways, I think, in this text. He, he calls for believers to pursue sanctification by, number one, issuing a cautious exhortation in verses 1 and 2. And he does that because he knows there are distractions to be avoided as we pursue the prize of Christ's likeness. And he issues, he issues not only this call to be cautious, he also tells us that true believers are to pursue sanctification by number two, making a careful comparison in verse three. Because there are distinctions to be examined as we pursue the prize of Christ's likeness in our life. Paul calls for true believers to pursue sanctification by number three, revealing a captivating confession there in verses 4 through 11 because there are things, there are deeds to be denounced, repented of as we pursue our prize of Christ's likeness. Paul calls for true believers, lastly, to pursue sanctification by number 4, declaring a confident declaration in verses 12 to 16 because there are disciplines to be enjoyed as we Pursue our prize of Christ's likeness. That's your outline of this text this morning. I pray that that will serve you later. Let's begin by by looking at verses 1 and 2 once again. Here Paul is calling for true believers to pursue sanctification by issuing a cautious exhortation here. Because he knows there are some things that will distract us. And we need to avoid them. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Basically, he's just tying up the thought that he left off in in chapter 2 about these gifts that God's given to the church, these faithful men. Praise God because he gave you these men. It's all about God giving and God providing and God protecting his people. So finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And he'd mentioned some false teachers earlier on. He'd mentioned some false ideologies earlier on in Philippians. And he's simply coming back to that saying, it's, it's no problem for me to go back and remind you of these things. It's actually profitable It's to protect you. In verse 2 he says, so, so look out for these things. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The word look out could also be translated beware. Beware of dogs. Beware of doers of evil. Beware of false circumcision, mutilators. The first thing we see is he's simply saying this, be, be cautious here. He, he's giving true believers a cautious warning here. He's telling them how to avoid false teaching and things that will distract them in the pursuit of Christ-likeness. Paul, Paul issues this because 
These things are distractions that need to be avoided. If we're going to pursue our prize, we must do so because of Christ, not because of our works. Not because of what we can accomplish, but what Christ has accomplished. And the distraction he's talking about in particular with this church is the false teachers and false teaching that the Judaizers brought in. The Judaizers taught that Gentiles must come through the gate of Judaism to be saved and sanctified. In other words, if you want to be a real Christian, the Judaizers would say you need to become like a Jew. You need to follow our rituals, our rites. You need to be circumcised. If you're going to be saved, you have to do this. And if you want to be really spiritual or sanctified, set apart for God, you must follow our rituals. Paul says, look out. Look out. Avoid these distractions because what you do in the flesh doesn't bring you merits with Christ. It's what Christ did in the flesh that brings you merits in God's presence. So in verse 2, Paul says, look out for these guys. Look out for those guys who are like dogs. The guys who are actually not in the gate, but outside the gate. You don't get in the gate by following the dogs. The dogs are outside the gate where they belong. Because at this time period, dogs were actually these, these wild scavengers. They weren't household pets. Dogs plagued the ancient cities. They roamed in packs and they were shoved outside the gate, outside the city walls. They lived on garbage and refuse. And they occasionally attacked anyone who came near them and tried to consume them. So therefore, Paul says, look out for the dogs, the Judaizers. Look out for the false teachers because they are like dogs. They are unclean and filthy and they are outside the gate. They are vicious and dangerous and they will consume you. So they must be avoided if you're going to pursue biblical sanctification. See, you don't grow in godliness by conforming the flesh. Godliness is something that comes out from the heart. It transforms the outward man, but from the inside out, not from the outside in. So he says, look out for those who try to teach it the other way. Look out for those who try to be evildoers. In other words, they're doers. The the emphasis here on doing. Look out for those guys who add human merits, good deeds to Christ's merits, Christ's finished work. And that's what the Judaizers would do. They actually would say that, that... Jesus, and they wouldn't say this directly, but it's an indirect statement. They would simply say that, you know, Jesus made a way for sinners to be saved, but you need to perfect this. In other words, there's something lacking in the atonement of Christ that only you can merit through your obedience. You can only secure your salvation or obtain or earn sanctification by doing these things. Paul says, look out for evildoers. Those who say, do this and do that and do this. And you will be set apart to God. These, these evildoers, again, are just simply in a, in a slight way saying that Christ's doing was not sufficient. You need to add something to Christ's work in your flesh so that you would really be truly holy and set apart for God. Paul says, look out, beware of these guys. Avoid evildoers. Because these guys do not realize that salvation is God's free and unmerited gift to sinners. It's the unmerited gift of God that actually changes the inward man that eventually shows up in the outward man's behavior. The gift of God produces good works. That's the the fruit of the gift. 
It doesn't cause us to be saved. It is the fruit of our salvation. The born-again sinner pursues sanctification as a result of justification. Because we've been justified, we pursue righteousness. We love the things that God loves. We now hate the things that God hates. We don't pursue righteousness to obtain God's favor. We've been granted God's favor so that we can see what he loves and hate what he hates. So he says, look out for things that will distract you from following God's gracious design. Then he says, look out for those mutilators. It's a very harsh term. He's actually saying, look out for the false circumcision. Look out for the guys who tell you to be circumcised, to be righteous. Look out for the guys who tell you to do these things outwardly when internally their hearts are still uncircumcised. The whole point of circumcision was to illustrate to Israel what the heart should be like. It should have the filth removed from it, and that can only be done by the miracle of God's grace, not by an external act. He says, in reality, what these guys are like, they're like the pagans who mutilate their flesh to try to please a God. They cut themselves. They bleed to try to atone for their own sins. He says, the false circumcision are like that. They're mutilators. These false teachers mutilated their flesh and the message of God's grace by trying to add traditions and rituals and laws to the gospel of Christ. They wanted to obtain outward appearances of sanctification, yet their inward man was still dead in sin. Could not find favor with God through what they did on the outside. Therefore, they would say that if we can't, we can't do this, we can't do this on our own, then we must, we must try to get others to see that we are the leaders of Israel and we are the truly spiritual ones and they'll follow us and maybe by, by their following our teaching, we will find favor with God. So the Judaizers kept following and hounding Paul from city to city, trying to countermine his teaching because they needed followers to affirm their teaching, to make them feel as if they are being truly set apart for God's purposes. That's why they had such a, a passion to overthrow this teaching of God's grace. They couldn't rest. It's interesting that Paul, he rests all the time. Every city, even when he's beaten, he can rest in the gospel of Christ because he knows that his salvation and the salvation of sinners rests on Christ and his accomplishments. So Paul's reminding us, reminding the Philippians here to not be distracted from these outward, these outward teaching teachers of the law, these outward false teachers, these, these false circumcised people, these dogs, these evildoers. He's reminding true believers not to be distracted by outward actions. He does that because the flesh and, and false teaching and false teachers love to focus on human effort instead of God's free and unmerited favor. Look what it says in Galatians when Paul addresses this in Galatians 3. Paul here in Galatians 3 warns, he warns the Galatians, he warns us, he warns the Philippians to look out for the legalists. Look out for the legalists from outside and look out for the legalists within. Look out for the legalists and their ideas of pursuing sanctification through outward manifestations. Look out for those who try to distract you from pursuing righteousness because of God's grace. Galatians 3.1 it says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. 
Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected or sanctified by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify or declare right the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Then he says this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. The reason they're under a curse is because no man can actually fulfill the righteous requirements of the law from the heart continually 24-7. And that's what the law required. Love God with your mind, heart, strength, all you have, all your being, all the time, 24-7. No man could do this but Christ and Christ alone. So those who rely on doing the outward acts are under a curse For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by law, for the righteous shall live by faith, by trust, by trusting in Christ's righteousness. Now he's writing to Christians here. So there's there's a form of legalism that, that infects the church even after we're born again that tries to distract us from the glorious truth of God's continuing grace to us. And so he's telling them, be careful, look out. You didn't start this thing out in the flesh. It was the Spirit who began this work in you. It's the Spirit who will perfect it. It's the Spirit who will manifest it. Pastor C.J. Mahaney summarizes how, how legalism can distract us from the glorious truth of God's grace when he says this. He says, Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. That's legalism. Legalism is trying to to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance or love by God through obedience to God. Now listen, God's love for us is not obtained or sustained by our obedience. It was obtained and it is sustained by Christ's obedience. He is our righteousness. And legalism and legalistic thinking distorts the gospel of grace. It mutilates it. It is to be denounced. It is to be rejected. It is destructive. That's really what we see throughout the scriptures about legalism. Legalism leads to destruction and distortion and discouragement. Legalism leads sinners to build their hope on a faulty foundation that ends in destruction. Trusting in the flesh will lead to eternal death. Cursed is every man who does not do everything that is written in the law. It's a faulty foundation. It's a dangerous foundation. It's destructive. Legalistic teaching can can lead true Christians, true believers, not to destruction, but can lead us down a path of discouragement. And distortion. Legalism focuses on our performance, not on God's grace. 
And if we focus on our performance, we will fail miserably, won't we? Every time. We fall short. But if we focus on Christ's accomplishments and God's favor to us, we will not find discouragement when we fall short, will we? We'll be reminded of what God has provided for sinners like us. But legalism will lead us to this, this place of constant discouragement because I'm not performing well enough. I'm not pleasing God. I'm falling short. I'm a miserable wretch. I can't do anything right. I'm just going to bemoan and, and groan and, and find fault with everything that I do. I might as well give up. That's where we end up. When we, when we turn to Christ, we recognize, yeah, we fall short. Yeah, we have failed miserably in the pursuit of righteousness. But Christ performed perfectly. Christ lived righteously. Christ's work was pleasing to the Father in our place. We trust in that work. We find our hope, not discouragement, in that. That's what Paul's reminding us of here. When he's telling us to look out for distractions, avoid distractions. This cautious exhortation is to tell us to be careful of those who come along and give us a gospel of distortion. In Philippians 3, 2 and in Galatians 1, Paul reminds us that true believers press on, press on or pursue righteousness, press on toward our goal by cautiously guarding our minds against false teaching Legalistic motivation, right? We, we guard our minds against this kind of activity. We are called to do that as God's people. It's what even the Apostle Paul said here in Galatians 1.6. He says, look, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace or favor of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's like, look, you're being distracted here. I'm amazed that you're being distracted. You're deserting the one who called you by his favor into salvation to a different gospel. And he's going to actually say it's not a different gospel. It's not a gospel at all. It's like the idea of someone saying that the prosperity gospel is a gospel. It's not a gospel at all. It's a legalistic motivational system. That's all it is. But this warning would apply to that system. Verse 7 says, not that there is another one, not another gospel, not another gospel, but there are some who trouble you, distract you, and want to distort the gospel of Christ, the good news about Christ. But, he says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. It means to be separated from God for all eternity. It means damned, that's what it means. He says, look, I would rather see an angel, a holy angel, damned for eternity than someone to distort the reality of Christ's righteous work in your place. Don't let anyone distract you from the truth, not even an angel. Don't even do it. Don't even listen to him. Don't even put up with him for an hour. That's what he went on to say in Galatians as you read further on. He didn't put up with it when he saw legalistic tendencies flowing back into Peter's life. He rebuked him publicly. He did that because he wants to guard God's people from this tendency of leaning on our works and not trusting in Christ's righteousness. A true believer cautiously avoids legalism by rejoicing in God's grace. It's one of the marks of a true believer. You will hate legalism, you will turn from legalism and trust in God's grace. 
So just ask yourself this morning, are, are you cautiously guarding your soul against legalism? How are you doing that? The only way to really guard yourself against legalism is to fill your mind with truth. That's how you avoid distractions. That's how you avoid error. You fill your mind with truth by joyfully, thankfully rejoicing over the truth that God's given you in the Bible. By studying the word joyfully, by pursuing fellowship joyfully with the church, by joyfully going to God in prayer because of his mercy and his grace. That's how you cautiously guard your soul against legalism. Paul, Paul wants us to be guarded against that. God wants us to be guarded against that ultimately. Because it, it distorts the gospel of his son. It says, that, it says that Christ's work was not enough. And so we need to avoid that distraction. We need to avoid it. We need to avoid any kind of legalistic pursuit of sanctification. If we don't do this, we will wander into this miserable condition of discouragement, of not meeting up to the standards. So therefore we give up. And we, quit, we quit pursuing what God's called us into. We don't press on. We're prone to wander. That's what really I think Paul is telling the Philippians. You know, look out for these guys. Well, why is he telling them that? Except that maybe they're already listening to these guys. And so he's telling them, you know, look, you're prone to wander into legalistic pursuits of sanctification. So, so press into and rejoice over the power of the gospel carefully. That's why he goes on to say what he says in verse 3. In Philippians 3.3, 3, God gives true believers, number two, a careful comparison to encourage them in the pursuit of sanctification. He gives us a careful comparison. He helps us see the difference between the false circumcision and the true circumcision. The circumcision that was done in the heart when we are regenerated by God's grace transforms the life. The life being submitted to laws and legalism doesn't change the heart's desires and passions. But when God transforms us, he regenerates us, he gives us a new heart with new passions then there'll be a distinction in our life that separates us from the false circumcision. Verse 3, Paul makes a careful comparison for us because there are distinctions to be examined as we pursue our prize of Christ-likeness. Paul's basically reminding us that true believers are distinct because of Christ's work, not their own. Because of God's grace, not their obedience. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying we shouldn't be obedient. I'm not saying we shouldn't pursue righteousness. That's what this whole text is about. It's pressing on and pursuing the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But we need to understand why we pursue it and how we pursue it. It is by God's grace and through God's Spirit that we pursue this because He is at work in us, magnifying the work of His Son through us. That's why Paul is so excited in, in 3.11 about attaining the outward manifestation of the resurrection. The outworking of the resurrection through his life. We should be excited about that as Christians. We are, we are God's ambassadors. He has given us our life as a gift, our eternal life as a gift, and our physical life as a gift. He has set His Spirit in us. He has regenerated our hearts. He has transformed this heart of stone into a heart of flesh so that He could magnify the work of Jesus Christ through us. 
That's what motivates sanctification. That's what moves us to obedience. That's what makes us rejoice over reading the scriptures and fellowshipping with the saints and praying to God and pursuing spiritual disciplines. It's the work of God's grace alive in us, moving us. It's, 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 like, it's like when you when you're a kid. And, and, and guys understand this, I, I, maybe the girls too, but you know, your dad gives you this, this, this model car, you know, and you build that car, and, and it's like, that's the car I want to have when I'm 16, right? Oh, I love it. You look at that car for years, you know, four or five years growing up. You know, you're looking at it, you're looking at it. That car is wonderful. And then one day you're able to actually go out and buy the real deal. You get in that car, and that car doesn't just sit there. That car gets up and moves because there's power in it. It's not just the shell. It's the reality it's the substance of that shadow. And that's what he's saying we have in Christ. We don't just have this outward manifestation that's alone. We have this outward manifestation that's fueled and powered by the Spirit and the work of Christ. It moves us. It changes us. And it's evidential to others, right? I mean, my first car was, was one of those things that was uh, evident that I should have listened to my mom and dad more rather than less, when I took it out and drove it. Because it gave evidence to my heart, right? It gave evidence that I drove too fast and I was reckless. But the evidence of God's grace isn't reckless. It isn't, it isn't out of control. It controls us. God's grace constrains us. It presses us inward to look at Christ's work and give thanks to Him outwardly through our lives. And that happens through self-examination. He's telling us there are distinctions to be examined. Self-examination helps us do that. Self-examination leads to revelation and rejoicing in the true believer's heart. It does that because self-examination reveals the distinctions of true regeneration. See, the believer is different. Not by his outward works, but by the work of the Spirit. The believer is set apart. It means sanctified. It means to be set apart for holy and special service unto God. Therefore, God has given us something to equip us for that. He wants us to be different. He's designed us to be different. He's empowered us to be different. And we can examine that. That is something that you can comprehend. You can carefully compare your transformation to the false teacher's outward external rituals and observations, right? Careful examination leads to rejoicing if you're a Christian. It leads to rejoicing over God's inward circumcision that has made evident that your life belongs to Christ. That your life is being conformed to the image of Christ progressively through this work of the Spirit inwardly. So, so what he does here in verse 3 is he, he gives us a way to examine ourselves. Careful examination will reveal the true believer's heart. There are three things in verse 3 that stand out. I'm really not going to get past verse 3 this morning. But let's look at these three things. If you carefully examine your heart, you should see these three things in your life. If God has set you apart by His grace to the work of Christ. The very first thing we see is that the true circumcision is marked out by this. Number one. They worship by the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God. By the power of the Spirit. We worship God 
because of the one who now resides in us, who is the Holy Spirit. He points us to the work of Christ as our security. He points us to the work of Christ as our means of encouragement. It's the work of the Spirit that identifies us that we belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, the work of the Spirit will be manifest through your ongoing desire to magnify Him, to worship Him, to gather with the saints, to read His Word, to pray, to intercede on behalf of others. Worship isn't something you do just in a song, right? You understand that. We worship through song. We worship in the Word. And we worship through our life. Our life is to be a living sacrifice set apart to God. Everything we do should be an act of worship to God. Our work should be something that we do as unto God for the good of others. But it's ultimately an act of worship. In other words, declaring the worth of the one who saved us by the way we work, by the way we live, by the way we interact with others. Look with me at Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 5. I think we can see here that the true believer, as compared to the false convert, the false believer, the true believer worships by the Spirit of God. They worship God because of this. They worship because His Spirit resides in us and His Spirit confirms that we belong to Christ. It's through Christ's work that we now become worshipers of the most holy and righteous God. Verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been declared right, justified, not by our works, not by legalism, not by circumcision, not by church attendance, not by prayer, not by making a decision, not by pursuing one another. We're justified by faith. By grace through faith you are saved. It's not any kind of work that you've done. Because if it was, you would boast. It says, therefore, since, because you have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now, first and foremost, if you understand that text, you worship the Lord by the Spirit. If you get that and you understand that, and that's speaking of the peace that you now have with God, the peace that you didn't have when you were living in your sins, and you know that God granted that to you through the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, you will worship by the Spirit. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this favor, this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He says, look, you've you've not only been declared right before God. I mean, you're standing before God is completely right. That's good news. That's the best news in the world. But not only is it that you have had your sins removed, you now have access to the very presence of God. One day you'll spend eternity with him rejoicing in his glory That's why he says, you've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which you stand. Verse 3, he keeps on just escalating here. More than that, we rejoice, we worship in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because... Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
We do all these things because God's love through the atoning work of Christ. Peace has been made between us and God because of his love that's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We rejoice. We rejoice when we suffer. We rejoice knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces more assurance that we belong to Christ. How how can the Christian worship at the stake when he's being martyred for his faith? But through this. The true believer worships by the Spirit of God no matter the circumstance. When things are right, we rejoice. When things are bad, we rejoice because we belong to Christ. And Christ is God's and we belong to Him. We belong to Him. We worship God because of the Spirit who now resides in us. That's one of the key marks of a true believer. If a a person says that they're a believer in Christ and they do not want to worship Him with the saints in the Word and in prayer, they need to examine themselves to see if they have truly been born again. See, examining yourself isn't, isn't so that you can say, well, I must have a false conversion. That's not the primary reason, but that, that is something that may manifest itself as you do this. Well, praise God if he exposes that, because then he's telling you, I want you to be saved. I want you to be secure. Repent of your sins and trust in me. Worship me by the Spirit. But a true believer is also marked out, if you look back in Philippians 3, 3, by not only worshiping by the Spirit, but also, secondly, glorying in Christ Jesus. The true believer boasts in Christ's work, not our defiled works. Our righteousness is as a filthy rag, a blood-stained garment that's filthy. Our best days are no better than that. In comparison to Christ. We make our boast in Christ. In Christ alone. Our hope is in this. And we want to magnify this. So the true Christian worships by the Spirit. And he magnifies Jesus in doing so. So ask yourself. Are you you glorying in Christ? Are you boasting in Christ when people compliment you? Yes, but I do that because of Christ. To him be the glory. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.30 says. Actually, let me go to verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Every good work that we do as believers finds its root in Christ. We were ordained to salvation by God's grace and to good works through Christ. See, the the, the power of the resurrection that brought Jesus Christ into God's presence 
to declare that his offering was accepted. That power now resides in us. That power now is working its way out of us so that whenever we do something right, so that whenever we obey Christ, so that we pursue righteousness, we have to say, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. And the true believer wants to glory specifically in the work of their Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We want to tell people about our Savior, don't we? We want, to, we want to share the gospel with people, not just because not just because we got our salvation and we're going to heaven. We want to make much of our Redeemer. We want to declare his glory. We want to declare his greatness, his power, his mercy, his majesty. We want to do so with all that we have in us. So ask yourself, are you doing that? I don't mean, are you witnessing? Are you evangelizing so that, that you know, you'll feel better about yourself? But is evangelism and and witnessing something that just comes out of you because you want to glorify Christ? Because you love Him so much. I mean, you don't have to ask me if I love my wife. I hope you can tell that I love my wife by the way I talk about her. I glory in my wife. I, I, I rejoice over my wife because she's someone that I love and I adore. And this should be magnified multiple times over when it comes to our Savior. We glory in Christ Jesus. We boast in what He's done so that we can make much of Him and glorify His name here on earth as we will in heaven. Thirdly, true believers in verse 3, He tells us not only worship by the Spirit, not only glory in Christ, but they put no confidence in the flesh. You know what that means? We repent of self-righteousness. When, when we start to do things right and things go well in our life and we start to think that, boy, I got that job, that interview, that situation opened up for me because I was faithful to church. I was faithful to call people at church. I was faithful in Bible study. I was faithful in my devotions. I was faithful here. I was faithful there. We need to repent of that. That's self-righteousness. God opens doors. God shuts doors for his glorious purposes. He doesn't do that because we have done something to earn his favor. That's legalism. We repent of legalism. We put no confidence in our flesh, in our ability to please God or obtain God's favor through our works. We put no confidence in that whatsoever. We confess with all the saints that we are wretches saved by grace. And anything that flows out of us is a direct work of Christ working in us and through us. A true believer glories in this. They glory in Christ. Their confidence is in Christ. That's what makes us distinct. That's what makes us different in this world. Not our efforts. It's God's grace that changes us. In verse 3 and in Colossians 1, Paul reminds us that true believers press on or pursue our goal by carefully examining our hearts and actions. Look with me at Colossians 1. 21. Ask yourself as we read this, are, are, you, are you carefully, am I carefully examining my life? Am I, am I examining my motives of my heart, my actions in my life? Am I examining them in light of 
what Christ has given us, in light of what Christ has done for me, how do I respond? See, sanctification is the response of the forgiven heart. That's it. Pretty simple. Because of Christ, we do this. Through the Spirit, we do this. By God's grace, we do this. It's, it's all to the glory of God. But we do. Not like the evildoers. We don't do to obtain. But because we have obtained by grace, we do. That's the Christian's life. And, and verse 21 here in Colossians actually explains why we do what we do. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... All our deeds were, were evil. Total depravity infects every motive of the heart. It means every part of our being is infected with sin. Therefore, even our most righteous looking deeds are evil at the core. And we were doers. We were evil doers. Every person is born, comes into this world as a sinner. And as a works based salvation pursuer. We try to find favor with whatever God we can think of by doing something externally. And yet he's saying, look, I want to tell you what God did for you internally and see how this changes you externally. You, you who were alienated because of your evil deeds, verse 22 says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. See, he came in the flesh to do what we could not do for us. Perfectly. Jesus came and lived our life to the glory of God the Father for us. Obeying all the legal requirements that were imposed upon us by our Creator. Rightfully so. And Jesus comes now in the flesh to reconcile the sins that we have committed against our holy and righteous God. He comes now in order, He says, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. What? He came in the flesh to bring us to God, to bring us to the Holy One, to bring us into the, the, the holiest of holies, into God's presence. Blameless. I'm a sinner. You are a sinner too, right? We are sinners. Yet in Christ we are blameless. There, there is no sin debt on your account because of God's grace. And because of that, you continue to pursue sanctification. The next verse explains it. If you understand this, you've been alienated, you've been now reconciled through this blameless work of Christ through His body, you've been made holy if indeed you continue in the faith. If you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. If you start to put your trust in your works, legalistic teaching, you will be shifted, unstable, not steadfast, wavering, not assured of anything. But if you as a Christian recognize your sins, yet you recognize that it's been atoned for by Christ, you are stable though you fall short. You are steadfast though the world may rock. You are not shifting. You are on a sure foundation, no matter what winds blow, you are 
not move because your faith is in the rock Christ Jesus. That's why you continue on. You continue on because His Spirit is working in you. His power is working in you. His grace has come to you. You have the hope, the assurance. That word hope, just always notice this. When you read hope in the New Testament, primarily it means assurance. Those who have been reconciled by Christ's sacrifice will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting because of the assurance of the gospel message. That's why we glory in Christ, worship in the Spirit, put no confidence in the flesh. We have been purchased by God through the life of Christ Jesus. We are His. We are His for a specific reason, to bring Him glory on earth and in heaven for eternity. When you examine your life, I, I hope you see that your, your hope in eternal life isn't in the length that you're going to spend the time you're going to spend in heaven. I hope that your hope and your assurance is in the kind of life you've been given. The quality of the life, the new life, the resurrected life, which is the life of Christ that's working through you. That's what always brings you into God's favor. It's his life. We're covered in his righteousness forever. We have an imputed righteousness credited our account by God's grace for his glory. And it transforms us here on earth. And when you examine yourself, I I pray that that's what encourages you. I I pray that you'll be encouraged by pressing into self-examination. Because I pray that it will lead you to glory in Christ's sanctifying work in your place. I pray that it will cause you to, to glory in what Christ has done to bring you to the throne of grace. It was a throne of judgment apart from Christ. Now it's a place of rest and favor for those who repent and believe. And those who hope in the gospel will give evidence of that hope through their life. The gospel doesn't come. God doesn't send send his son to the world to save a bunch of secret Christians. That's not why Christ came. He came to, to, to call people out to follow him. To glory in him. To love him. To adore him. To share him with others. The kind of Christianity that that thinks that that I'm saved and it's my secret is not biblical Christianity. Now, not everybody shares it the same way. Not everybody stands on the corner and and shouts, you know, the gospel. Some of you just whisper the gospel daily to your children, to your friends. In prayer, you give thanks. You serve the church. But you do so in the power of Christ, rejoicing in him, worshiping by the spirit, glorying in what he's done to place you into this place of rest. And it's manifested throughout your life. And when you examine yourself, though, though your faith may be weak and there is weak faith, there is strong faith, there's maturing faith. The whole reason he's writing Philippians three is so that they'll attain to something. Not everybody got it. He's trying to tell them, look, if you're not getting it now, you're going to get it eventually either here or in eternity. But he he wants us to know that even though our faith may be weak, if it's faith that's grounded in Christ, it will be evident. It will be evident through our lives. 
Not because we're trying to please God, but because God is pleased in His Son, and He sent His Son to be our Savior, Redeemer, and Friend, and we are with Him all the way. He has not left us. He has not forsaken us. He hasn't left us as orphans. He's working in us to make much of Himself here on earth because that is the most glorious and gracious thing He could do for us, is to show us how great He truly is. And just be humbled and amazed as you examine yourself and recognize God Almighty chose to show you His love personally by sending His Son to atone for your sins and calling you out to be His ambassador. I don't care who you are in this room. If, you're, if you feel like you're insignificant and weak and not, a, not a, a great outspoken Christian, if you know this truth, it will transform the way you live. It's progressive, okay? I understand that. But the more you ponder the work of Christ and you worship Him by the Spirit of God and you put no confidence in the flesh, the more you'll be amazed at how God transforms your life and conforms you to the image of Christ. Your love will change. Your attitude will change. Your your perspective of this life will change. You'll see life as what it truly should be for the Christian. It's a mission. This isn't our destination, right? This is the mission field. This is our time of opportunity to redeem for His glory. So I really pray that 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 Philippians passage will help you with that.